Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Cleontel podcast, a 10-part series dedicated to the beloved British indie band, the Cleontel, who have just released their fantastic new album, I Am Not There Anymore. I am your host, Robin Allender, and this episode, and the subsequent two episodes after this, are going to be slightly different from previous ones because I'm going to be talking to fans of the band. I'm really interested in people's musical backgrounds, how they discovered the Cleontel, and what the band means to them. So these episodes are probably a bit more discursive, but don't worry, uh, we always try and bring it back round to the band. Anyway, this week I'm delighted to be speaking to Audrey Golden. Audrey is a writer and radio presenter currently based in New York. She writes regularly for Louder Than War and has just published her first book, I Thought I Heard You Speak, Women at Factory Records, which we discuss in the episode. She's a long-time fan of the band and has recently interviewed Alistair for Louder Than War, so I'll put a link to that in the episode description. So please enjoy my chat with Audrey Golden. So, hi Audrey, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good, how are you? (laughs) Very good. Thanks so much for coming on, on the show, on the podcast. Yeah, no, I'm excited to be here. Cool. Can you just start by telling us a bit about your background and what led you to become a writer? Yeah, I I think I probably have a background that is in some ways dissimilar from other writers, but then I think in a lot of ways similar to other writers who tend to take, you know, sort of labyrinthine paths to where where they're getting. Uh, So I first uh, went to university to study film studies and art history and then ended up going to law school and got a JD. practiced law really briefly, then went to get a PhD in uh, literature and uh, was in academia for a number of years teaching um, literature and film, contemporary literature and film, but doing a lot of kind of public speaking and public writing on the side. I was giving lectures at the Coolidge Corner Theater, which is, um, I think it's America's oldest independent cinema. It's in Boston, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, and I give some lectures on cinema and music um, and was, you know, always really interested in more public facing writing and grew really frustrated at the way academia doesn't really allow for that. Um, I think a lot of people in academia want to, you know, think academia allows for that, but it really, it really doesn't in so many ways. And so I, I made my escape (laughs) (laughs) Um, and uh, started writing a lot more for Louder Than War, which I had been doing already anyway, and started working on the Women at Factory book. I started that a number of years prior, but that really, um, you know, taught me that there are ways of engaging with the public and writing and doing work that's actually going to be read in a way that um, I don't think a lot of uh, scholarly writing is really read by the public. And it's at once a shame because I think there are a lot of really interesting ideas out there, but a lot of those materials also just aren't written in a way that, you know, are readily accessible by somebody who's not an expert in a specific field. So, um, so that is how I became a writer. <laughs> That's a good answer. So it's almost like a high and low culture divide in some ways then. Yeah, I think it, I think it is in some ways. And I think also, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of public writing can be high culture and can be really smart while still being accessible. But I Mm. think the academy 
in large part hasn't really figured out how to do that yet. Or maybe some people don't want to do that. I don't know. I, I can't speak for everybody, but, um, but I think it's really important, you know, if you're kind of trained to write and trained to think and spend a lot of, you know, your life um, thinking about how to get ideas across to people that you put that stuff in a forum that actually mm. is read by, you know, yeah. read by a lot of people. So, um, yeah. <laughs> and what are your earliest memories of music? I mean, music was obviously a huge part of your life. What's the first music that you got into? Um, I was uh, classically trained on both piano and violin. Um, I started playing piano when I was about three and uh, violin soon after that. So I was taking music lessons, classical music lessons, uh, and practicing a lot. But that was actually music I never really liked. <laughs> um, kind of from the get-go, I, you know, I, I would ask my parents if I could play something else. Could I play the guitar? Could I play the bass? And it was always, no, practice the piano, practice the violin. <laughs> and, um, and I hated it. Um, but as I got older, a little bit older, and started hearing different kinds of music, I realized that there were ways of taking those instruments and doing other things with them. And that's exciting. Um, I would say my first kind of music love was the Beatles. Uh, for me, it was hearing probably Sgt. Pepper. I loved that record and I played it just over and over and over again and loved the kind of shift in different songs on it. Obviously you have Paul songs, John songs, um, George songs, um, and hearing uh, the way some of the uh, Indian instruments that George was interested in coming into that record, but also still hearing the kind of fun songs like When I'm 64, um, I Loved Strawberry Fields Forever. Um, wasn't, your, wasn't your nickname Lovely Rita as well? Am I right? <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> yes, that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, when I, was, uh, when I was in middle school, my friends and I uh, decided to come up with secret nicknames for one another. And so, you know, so we could pass notes back and forth because this is before the age of phones, you know, cell phones or any kind of technology. So written notes left places, right, to pick up and find um, and to pass back and forth. And my name was Lovely Rita. Yep. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so Beatles first for me, really. But then as I got a little bit older, I started discovering a lot of other music, listening to a lot of the music coming out in the early 90s, um, hearing bands like Nirvana, like Bikini Kill. Um, I fell in love with those bands. Um, and then uh, as a result, largely of Nirvana, hearing bands like the Raincoats and realizing that you could play violin and kind of new and interesting and seemed like just gloriously crazy ways. I thought, oh, maybe this classical training isn't for nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're listening to all that range of music and obviously factory records, you know, keyed into lots of different kinds of music. Where does the clientele sit for you amongst all that music? They've always been really a really interesting um, band that has like experimental leanings in certain ways, but that also somehow captures this idea of living in a certain like ephemerality, living a certain kind of 
liminal lifestyle in certain ways. Um, for me, it's always uh, gotten at a lot of ideas I'm interested in about how you kind of place yourself in relation to others and how you kind of place yourself in the world and the ways that different instruments can also replicate these ideas of liminality, really, and ephemerality. Um, it's interesting to me how their records kind of shift over time in certain ways, but also really stay with some of those same themes or ideas across time. Yeah, that's so true, isn't it? And I think what's really interesting is that on a very superficial level, you know, some clientele songs are so simple because it's guitar, bass, drums, vocals, you know, but they seem to have such depth. And it's something that's quite intangible about it, about how they're managing to convey that. Because, you know, I've kind of compared, compared them to Boards of Canada or a band like Broadcast before. And they would use kind of production techniques to kind of create a nostalgic feeling. But it seems to be something that's quite innate in Alistair's songwriting that's conveying that sense, you know. Yeah, I think absolutely. And um, when I was talking to him not so long ago, we were talking a lot about poetry and kind of different different forms that poetry takes and the ways that sort of thinking in poetic language, I kind of hate that term, but I think it's, it's you know, in certain ways it's, it's really applicable, just thinking about ways of putting words together that might not be creating an obvious narrative are ways that Alistair really... Uh, write songs um, that that are difficult to describe, that are difficult to kind of place in any specific genre. I mean, I think I think it is true that the music is related to some of you know some of uh, the similar music that was coming out around the time they were starting in the. Uh, I guess when I first got a record in two thousand, um, maybe just a little after that. Um, And, you know, they share certain qualities with other bands on Merge. Some of those qualities that I think, it's such a like broad, broad um, descriptor, but like that kind of indie, indie music Mm. um, descriptor that I think Merge is just really great at kind of recognizing and bringing together on their label. So they share some of that, of course, because they do really feel now to me like a Merge band. You said you first heard the clientele in 2000. So was that, would that have been Suburban Light that you heard? Yeah, 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 and yeah. What were your first impressions of, of that when you first heard them? It's just beautiful. I mean, it just seemed to me like beautiful music that conjured like a certain, I know I keep using the word liminal, but a kind of just like state of liminal being in some way. I just love the song Rain. Mm. Um, it's just yeah, it's I, I'm repeating myself, but it's just such an incredibly beautiful song, both in terms of the music itself, but the way it also um, just sort of calls forth this idea of of being somewhere but not being somewhere and being with a person but not being with a person mm-hmm. and sort of 
loving your surroundings, but also living in a kind of, I don't want to say fear of them, but like discomfort with them. And I think that was really my first impression of the band. And interestingly, it has really remained true throughout, uh, I think, the life of the band as I've known them and listening to um, their different music, that kind of sense of almost being a kind of missing person in some world right. um, in a way that's like, I'm, I'm really not being very articulate. <laughs> I'm not being very articulate. I should have written some things down. To, <laughs> yeah, but it's hard to define. I mean, it's very hard. To, it's very, very hard to define. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rain is one that really, yeah, that really grabbed me when I first heard it as well, because it, like with a lot of the songs on Suburban Light, they sound like classic songs. They sound like you've already heard them before, but they sound like a kind of, it sounds like a classic 60s love song that's been fractured in some way or filtered yeah. in some way. Mm-hmm. And, and that was what was so compelling about it for me. I think. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really true. It does feel like it's come from a past, but it's mm. also very much of a present yeah. in some way. Yeah, because there's a lot of, I guess things about some of the early songs and the the current songs that feel sort of like traditional. I mean, like you said, like sixties love songs are kind of like indie rock love songs in certain ways, but then there's something just a little kind of beautifully like off kilter about them that is really, really hard to define. And usually I'm not really without words, uh, (laughs) when, when, uh, you know, when describing or defining music, but I think with their music, that really is just one of the characteristics. It's one of the qualities and it's what makes them really special. It's, it's hard to define what it is exactly that they're doing. Yeah. I mean, sorry for going highbrow so early on, but I'm slowly (laughs) making my way through Proust in search of lost time at the moment. (laughs) But when you read it, you're just kind of constantly thinking, oh, yes, I know exactly what he's trying to describe. And it's so hard to define, but I know exactly what it is, that feeling or that sense or that experience. And, you know, there is a lot of that in Alistair's songwriting, of that I I recognise something. I know exactly that sensation or that feeling or that sense of eeriness he's describing, you know. Yeah, I think I think his songs um, just really do give a kind of sense of something that is so hard to put into words, but that feels really shared when you're listening to it. Um, and for me, I mean, I, I often wonder, and I'm not certain, but I, I think I have like a tiny bit of synesthesia and... Um, and uh, listening to a lot of um, the clientele songs really um, brings that out for me. It feels very much of certain kind of colors and shapes um, that feels really different than a lot of other music. And I think it brings it out more easily. Like I can, when I listen to a lot of um, Alistair's songs, I can... I immediately kind of get a sense of color or a sense of shape in a way that I don't necessarily with everything else. Do you think being a literature graduate, do you think that helped kind of draw you to the music and the lyrics in particular? Yeah, I think so. Probably, I tend to be, I tend to be drawn to um, uh, to music where I, I find something 
interesting in the lyrics and where I think especially there's something almost mysterious about the lyrics, but in a way that feels really knowable to me, which I think is true of Alistair's songwriting. There's something that I find a connection in with a lot of the lyrics, but they're often, um, they're not, you know, they're not literal. Um, no. But of course, yeah. uh, but but there is something kind of tangible about them in a certain way. Yeah. And I don't know if you've got the, the book, um, which is, it's called Exhaust Fumes, Magnolias and Light. And it, it's the selected lyrics of Alistair. Um, it came out a couple of years ago. And the one thing you notice about reading them is they do work really well on the page, which you can't say for a lot of lyrics, I think. Yeah, I think that's really true because I think songwriting is really different than writing poetry just in general. Um, And often I think actually when uh, musicians sort of see songwriting as writing poetry, it doesn't really work in a lot of ways. Like the, the music doesn't necessarily come out that way. But with Alistair's work, it really does feel that way. Um, like it really works. Um, and they do feel like poems on the page. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So did you follow the band then from Suburban Light on through all the records as well? Is there? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I feel like I'm still kind of most captivated by Suburban Light, but I think that's always how it goes or often how it goes with a band. The kind of first thing you hear is what you keep coming back to. But yeah, absolutely. And I've seen them play um, over the years too. So <laughs> Nice. And how was it live? I mean, amazing, Uh, a really, really amazing um, experience. And I think, you know, I think this is true for a fair number of bands, but um, live, the music really does come alive in a way Mm. that feels really different than the kind of production of the album. Um, So that's really great too. And I think I was saying this to Alistair uh, when I was talking with him recently, but Um, I know this isn't always great for bands. You don't want to play a small space, but I saw them play in Charlottesville, Virginia. And when I was working on my PhD um, at the club, The Southern there, which is a pretty small club. And uh, as a fan, it's always just amazing to get to go see a band you, you know, you really like at a club of that size. It's always amazing when you see someone you you really like and admire whose music you've been listening to is coming to a club where, you know, you can uh, feel a kind of intimacy with the band on stage. So that was a really great experience. And that's a venue I've just always, you know, really loved. I haven't been back to Charlottesville in a while now, but um, but yeah, that, that venue affords a kind of intimacy that a lot of others don't. <laughs> yeah, it's it seems as well that they're, they're a comparatively quieter band yeah. And the, it's quite delicate music at times. Yeah. So not that kind of music doesn't always translate that well live. Yeah. But I think it's because they've got such good interplay, particularly the rhythm section. It is a very, they are a really good live prospect, I think. You know, it really does work. 
Yeah, absolutely. And somehow they don't lose that fragility live that exists in the music. It's still there. Mm. Um, you called it delicate. And I think that's so <laughs> true too. This kind of delicacy or this like fragility of the sounds. Like you can almost imagine if something goes slightly awry, the sounds could break, could kind of crack. Um, uh, so they're fragile in that regard, but, uh, but they still, they come alive in a way live that I think you, you wouldn't necessarily expect what they really do. <laughs> and I'm interested to, to, to know about why you think they did so much better in America, at first at least, than in the UK. Because they certainly seem to find an audience in the States um, a, lot, a lot more easily. Yeah, you know, I I don't really know the answer to that. I mean, I can I can guess, yeah. <laughs> but that is solely solely just my guessing. Um, I mean, I feel like like just after the millennium, there was this kind of explosion of more thoughtful um, indie pop and indie rock in America that perhaps hadn't quite yet made it to the UK. Um, at least in my memory, but but memory is so flawed, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> when we think back, uh, there are so many things that filter how we how we remember. But in my memory from around that time, um, there was still a lot of kind of Britpop. I know Britpop mm. obviously started earlier, but in my memory, there's still really a lot of um, of like Britpop popularity yeah. in a way that those kinds of more, um, some of those like louder sing-along songs, yeah. I guess yeah. for me, mm-hmm. um, uh, were kind of transitioning to something different among American music. And I know obviously the clientele weren't on Merge initially, but I think perhaps that's kind of what Merge saw in the band and how they ended up on Merge as a Merge Records band. Um, they felt very uh, kind of in tune with me with uh, Magnetic Fields, but um, uh, the clientele is much more, um, feels much more earnest, yeah. whereas the Magnetic Fields are much more kind of playful mm. to me. Um and funny at times, the magnetic fields. Um, but there is a similar sensibility, I think, in terms of uh, playing with kind of softer sounds and um, using those softer sounds to make introspective and thoughtful music. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, the magnetic fields are kind of quite arch. I don't think you could ever say the clientella arch, but I think there is certainly, I think there is humour in there, though, at times, for sure. I think some of Alistair's, particularly some of the spoken word pieces like Museum of Fog is is quite funny um, in some ways. Um, But yeah, and I think when you meet them as well, they're very funny people as well. So there is a lot of humour to them, I think. Um, But yeah, that's a a really interesting comparison. Um, I was going to say as well, there's a brilliant bit in your book about factory records where um, Susan Ferguson, mm-hmm. who worked at the Hacienda, yeah. um, she said, the Manchester scene was very laddish, but I don't mm-hmm. think the indie scene that preceded that was. There were always women at gigs, women in bands. Maybe they didn't hit the big time in the same way. In a society, in a world that was very male, the Hacienda felt very different. So, I mean, obviously the clientele are men, but do you think there was something <laughs> of a similar appeal in that they they weren't kind of macho or some way it was certainly an antidote to the le- the tail end of Britpop and you know maybe bands like the strokes in the noughties or something yeah yeah i think that's a really interesting comparison and i guess it's one i hadn't thought of but i think absolutely yeah i mean 
I, uh, I've been thinking a lot about, um, I don't want to say too much because it's the next book project right. I'm working on, but, um, but, uh, about the way that certain, um, uh, male fronted bands or bands made up of male musicians actually are interested in sounds that are sort of socially deemed more feminine or more vulnerable in a certain way. And the way that, uh, those sounds can also be kind of radical, but just in a totally different way um, than sort of like loud or like boisterous or these typically like masculine coded punk. I'm not saying all punk. I'm saying the kind of, you know, mass, you know, masculine coded, like certain aspects of punk and then certainly of the Manchester scene um, uh, that there can be something radical in softer sounds as well that are typically coded sort of female or feminine in particular ways. Um, and I think those kinds of words we were using to discuss uh, Alistair's songwriting, but to discuss the clientele's music, uh, sort of delicate or fragile or soft. Um, there is something about their music that uh, speaks to those kinds of distinctions, but is still doing something really, really full. And I think their music really shows that um, sounds that are soft, that are delicate, that might be fragile, might be vulnerable, aren't necessarily um, more limiting or, or more narrow, but can have a really kind of fullness to them and um, be introspective leaning, but actually like speak outward in all kinds of ways that you wouldn't necessarily assume just from, you know, hearing a description of them, for example. Yeah. I mean, I suppose Joy Division would be the prime example of a, a band that does yeah. that emerging yeah. from that scene as well. Yeah, 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 I think so. Yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I feel like, yeah, there is a really interesting comparison to be made there because the sounds are obviously totally different. Yeah. I mean, for me listening to the clientele versus joy division, yeah. <laughs> they don't sound anything alike, right? right. Um, but in terms of that kind of vulnerability of the music and that kind of introspective nature of the music, there is a really interesting similarity at sure. work. Yeah. <laughs> So you interviewed Alistair recently. Um, yeah. what, what was that for? Was that for Louder Than War? Yeah, yeah. It's for an interview I'm working on now. So I'll, I'll hopefully have that done soon. <laughs> yeah. So is that to tie in with the new album? Yeah, yeah. Oh, great. Uh -huh. yeah. So what, what did you think of the new album? I think it's great. I mean, I think it's really interesting. I love how there's a lot of kind of callback to their earlier music, but also for me, I thought a lot more experimentation um, and a lot more kind of turning toward, uh, I guess, experimental music making. Um, I was really interested in the way some of Alistair's traditional songwriting is interspersed with the segs and the radials. Mm. Um, uh, on that record and the way those kind of give it a shape, a really interesting, almost tangible seeming shape um, that, you know, I don't know that their records have had previously. Yeah, that's really interesting. I love that almost tangible. It's great. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of interested in, I guess, what you took from it in terms of what, what you thought the album was about. 
because I know Alistair doesn't really want to talk about the really specific autobiographical yeah. elements, but there is this autobiographical narrative underneath, but it's quite submerged. I just wondered yeah. if you were able to pick any of those details out or if like me, I just kind of loved it because it was, I found it very enigmatic and very mysterious. <laughs> um, and I realized there were lots of interlinking parts and everything, Yeah. but it wasn't like I could say, you know, this song's about this or something like that, you know? Yeah, I mean, for me, it really spoke to this idea of liminality or this idea of ephemerality that I've, you know, I felt in their earlier records, but that seemed to really be more straightforward in a way here, which is, mm. I guess, an interesting word for me to use because the record is really enigmatic, like you yeah. were saying. But some of those ideas, I guess, really came to the forefront more for me. Um, thinking about the ways that as we kind of age and as we get older, there's a sense of being here, but not really there. Um, and the ways that uh, people kind of come into our lives and exit our lives and the ways that a person can experience this kind of, um, I have such a hard time articulating this and I've actually been thinking, I really want to kind of develop my own theory of this yeah. in some capacity because I just find it so fascinating to me, but the sense of kind of missingness mm. that a person can experience, um, or that a person can observe of another person, this, kind of um, circumstance where you can be really present but feel not here or where you can feel very here in a moment or feel very there, you know, whatever whatever way you want to think about it, but to be physically absent in some capacity. And for me, that's a like a different kind of liminality or ephemerality. Um, that I I can't quite describe. And I've I've actually I've been thinking about this a lot and this the kind of like spectralness of it and how, you know, across our lives at different points in time, you know, we can become almost ghost-like. And I'm not necessarily getting into the supernatural here, but um just thinking about uh about the ways we can become fluid people or the ways we can become people who are no longer, you know, opaque, but are starting to like disintegrate or disappear in certain ways or that fear of disappearing or disintegrating. And the way that produces this kind of spectrality or this sense of missingness. And I've been, you know, thinking about this idea and I just, I just feel it so much in this new album. Mm. Um, and I think I was talking to Alistair a little bit about this. I probably didn't go quite as in depth because I, at, at once, you know, perhaps you could listen to me and think I'm kind of losing my mind, no, but I'm not, not <laughs> I'm not, I assure no. you. Um, but, um, I've been, I've been reading a lot more Walter Benjamin, who I'm always reading. I mean, I'm always kind of picking up the arcades project, that gigantic, you know, like, I don't know, you know gigantic tome. I was going to say a number of itches the spine of the book is. Um, and, uh, and reading things about um, interiors versus exteriors and thinking about, 
the kind of Benjaminian idea of the trace um, and how we leave traces in certain places. Mm. Um, but I also think about it in relation to uh, like Susan Sontag's writings on photography and thinking about the ways that time can get captured but not captured and how someone can be present in a photograph but no longer living, yeah. you know, in some capacity. And I think about that a lot with cinema too, the way and documentary filmmaking and the way the capturing of a person who can be here, but then not really here is just something really interesting. So I don't, this is just me like babbling and musing no. about this idea, but it's really a sensibility that I find in Alistair's songwriting and especially in this last album. Mm. I mean, I think, yeah, grief obviously keys into yeah. that so much, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. Yeah, when my dad died a, a few years ago, his, I mean, it, it's a really strange thing to say, but, I, but his presence was so palpable. And I'm yeah. not talking about ghosts or anything like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But in a way that's very, very hard to define. Um, I mean, I, Alistair probably does it a lot better. But um, I think that's one of the things you have to deal with obviously the most when someone dies is them being there and not there, you know? Um, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, no. Mm. Yeah. I think, I mean, yeah, grief is the word I didn't mention, but mm -hmm. for me as well, I think a lot of my more recent thinking on this has also come from my um, dad passing away and mm. trying to kind of contend with, um, him being there but not there mm. and thinking about what that means. And I also don't mean in a, you know, in a way like I think he's like moving objects on my no. desk or anything like that. No. I mean, you know, um, um, but the way there are these uh, non-supernatural specters that we have to contend with. And, um, and then how when you start to focus so much on that and to think about that and almost to kind of deal with grief is to exist yourself in that state of liminality. Absolutely. I mean, I, I guess the one physical example would be, you know, going through all dad's books yeah, and having to, you know, you know, uh, give, give quite a lot away because he had so many mm -hmm. <laughs> and finding it particularly hard for ones which he'd signed his name in, yeah. for, for example, even though it shouldn't make any difference you know <laughs> that's the one which actually feels painful to part with you know um but yeah, yeah sorry <laughs> no 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 I yeah I I totally understand that and I mean for me it does speak to in certain ways that idea of the trace that Benjamin talks about and that mm. idea where you know when someone when you know someone's held the book and they've written their name in it there's still something physical of them there. Yeah. There's still, even though you can't see it and it's not, you know, quite literally there, their hand was there at one point signing the book. And so it becomes impossible to sort of imagine the book without the hand doing that writing. And so in a sense, like the hand is still there in the book as well. Mm. Um, and, and so that becomes part of kind of, the object's own life and it becomes so hard to part with that object and I completely know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's the same with places, isn't it? Places yeah. a lot of places feel like they have have a power that is completely external to us. Yeah. You know, I mean 
<laughs> you know, I grew up in uh, Bristol and there's an area called Broadmead, which was very, very badly bombed in the war. Mm-hmm. And it's it feels like it has an energy which is uh, kind of not very nice because it is so dilapidated and run down. And obviously yeah. I'm so familiar with it from childhood and everything. Mm-hmm. And obviously it is completely subjective, but it's the way that it feels like it's something outside of me. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> that has this power, you know. Uh, it's very strange. It's kind of hard to define. But I think there's so much of that in Alistair's songs because they're, they're very much about place, I think, mm-hmm. aren't they? The play- And where they grew up is very important to them with the, with the sighing motorway. One of my favourite lines, you know. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, you bring up too, a lot of Alistair's songwriting does kind of give a life to places, give a life to objects in that way. Um, And so there is a sense that there is, um, there's something living about the places we go or Mm -hmm. the kinds of, you know, things we hold, Um, like quite literally the things we hold, like a book. Mm -hmm. Um, And... uh, a sense of kind of pastness to those places, but a presentness too. Um, one of my favorite words that I, uh, think about a lot also, um, it sounds like I'm just going around (laughs) philosophizing like an adult all the time, (laughs) (laughs) but I, (laughs) maybe I am, (laughs) maybe I am. Um, but is the word palimpsest. Right. Yeah. Um, do you know this word? Yeah, where some things are layered on top of each other. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was originally, I think, you know, a word used to refer to like a quite literal physical object where something had been written and then erased mm. and something written over, but where you could still kind of perhaps see the outlines of the original writing that came like on a parchment or something. Yeah. Um, but then obviously the words used to describe like city spaces, like ones that have been bombed out, like mm. you were describing, but sort of like either built over in some ways or where nature kind of starts to take over in this way that I feel like W.G. Zabald would just Mm. like be enamored with. Um, And so you can kind of see that palimpsestic quality in so many places, but I think also in Alistair's songwriting too, there Mm. is a sense of something that came before in the kinds of places he's writing about. go back to the album yeah some of the production choices are very different uh, and do you think that will be difficult for some fans or do you think fans will just get on board with that, which whatever way they kind of progress and evolve I think fans are I mean I just assume mm, yeah. <laughs> gonna get on board I mean because there are so many elements of you know some of their earlier music and it, it feels like really part of a trajectory to me it doesn't feel so outside the box um totally there are you know new instruments and new sounds and kinds of new formations but it feels really in line with everything that's come before it feels like a kind of natural evolution to me um yeah <laughs> the reviews so far have been overwhelmingly positive so yeah, yeah you know yeah. which is really yeah. good to see yeah know. it feels like a really special album like a really special album mm. um because it not only is Alistair's songwriting really kind of beautiful and fragile and 
enigmatic to, you know, use the word you use, which I think is just really true um, throughout. But for me, that real, like I was saying, that kind of sense of the um, shape that the album has from those occasional segs Mm. or radials that come in, it kind of suggests for me there's this playful center from which things are being cut off or there are kind of these radials coming outward and kind of driving you as a listener to like other ends moving Mm. from the center out. And so I feel like as you're listening to the record from start to finish, the way those move through Alistair's you know, written songs with the really just affecting lyrics. Um, They both give you a pause as a listener in an interesting way, but they almost then show that just sounds themselves, even without lyrics, kind of tell a story. And so the whole album feels like this this whole narrative, this whole like beautiful enigmatic narrative unto itself that you're just constantly trying to figure out, you know, revisiting and revisiting and, and how are those segs and radials telling part of the story and how do they, you know, like interlace or how do they create kind of capillaries coming out from the songs? Yeah. And also the way the album loops around at the end, doesn't it? Because it ends with the introductory theme, as it were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's all yeah. Really nice. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like like you're really being brought full circle in some kind of um uh like frame narrative, like a frame story where you almost have a narrator, you know, starting and then jumping into something and coming back out to kind of close you out. <laughs> mm. And one thing you mentioned earlier, which I really like is because we were talking about comparing the Cleontelt and magnetic fields, but mm-hmm. you talked about the Cleontel being earnest or um, well, maybe earnest isn't, you know, what you said. I can't remember. but um, I think I did say earnest. I don't know if it's the best word. <laughs> right, but, yeah. but yeah, but there's there's something earnest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I suppose what I'm interested in is that, when, particularly when you see them live, that Alistair's voice is, communicates emotion so well, I think. Yeah. And there is something so sincere about the way he performs, I think. And... I think it's that, I didn't really know where I'm going with this, but I think it's that sincerity that you connect with because even though you can't quite make out the narrative at times, there's so much emotional weight behind it. Particularly in kind of last run of songs, that I Dreamed of You, Maria, particularly, is very, very powerful, I think, the more you listen to it. Yeah, I think when I said earnest, the words that I wish would have come to mind were emotional sincerity. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, think, I knew exactly yeah. what you meant. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I think that's ex- like ex- like spot on. That's, that's, those are, yeah, that's how I would describe what you're hearing. Um, certainly live, but I think also listening to the recorded sound as well. There is a kind of emotional sincerity to it that that does create a connection, even if you you know, perhaps aren't even an English speaker listening to the music. And I think that's something really special about the band's sound in general. I was saying this about the kinds of segs and radials. And I know, I think Mark um, Keane wrote, did those. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, but I think it's uh, it's true of those, certainly. But it's also true of, you know, other music where Alistair's, you know, been at the center of the songs there is a kind of storytelling and there is some kind of emotional connection in just the music itself without the lyrics. There's something about the sonic quality of their music that 
brings you into um, something emotional, um, some kind of emotional knowledge, emotional story, even at times. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, I said this to Alistair and James when I interviewed them, but with Suburban Lights, part of you is almost tricked by the fact it was recorded onto tape and it's got that lovely warm analog yeah. sound, yeah, which gives it this beautiful kind of nostalgic filter. Yeah. And you think, ah, oh, that's why it sounds like this. And then you listen to the produced, more well-produced stuff and it still has that quality. <laughs> so yeah. 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 It's yeah. quite amazing. Absolutely. For me, I always think of that kind of music as sounding like tungsten light, that kind of light that you get, you know, at the magic hour, that kind of golden um, analog light. And for me, like that, that's really their music so much part of thinking how to describe that image. It's their sound. Yeah, that's so that's such a good way of putting it. I love that. (laughs) Who do you think what other bands do you think who are around now are kind of operating in the same kind of uh, area, do you think? Or do, or do you think they're kind of outliers in some ways? <laughs> hmm. oh, that's a hard, that's a hard <laughs> question. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, to me, honestly, in the present, they feel kind of like outliers. Um not in a bad way. Um, their music feels like it's doing something different. Um, I'm having trouble thinking of really any records I've listened to recently. I've liked a lot of recent music that has come out, but none of it has that same kind of emotional pull that their Mm. music has. Um, nothing that's, nothing that's been released recently. And I mean, especially the new record. Um, I think, you could probably tell from um, my rantings, my kind of, you know, mad rantings about missingness and being here but not here, that um, that idea that's just kind of embedded in the record, I am not there anymore, um, just led me really thinking down this line. And so when I've been listening to the record, I'm lucky because I've had the stream, you know, the advanced stream, yeah, so I've been right. listening to it and thinking about it more than I guess any fans, a lot of fans have Uh, been able to do yet but the record has really given me a lot to think about with regard to some of those ideas I was mentioning to you and I mean for me that's really like the greatest thing I could say about a band is that their record has you know got me thinking it's Mm. really it's led me to thinking about all kinds of ideas that have been kind of welling up for me and thinking about how to um how those those kinds of ideas, like those ideas of missingness, those ideas of liminality, um, those ideas of ephemerality and what spectral means, um, how those can be conveyed. And this album really, I think, tells you one way those ideas can be conveyed. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think that's, uh, at least for me, um, I... I don't know that I could give even, you know, any higher praise just because it's not so often that I'll listen to something and it just has me thinking and writing down my thoughts, which I've been doing and looking up ideas and trying to connect them. And that's really what I've been doing with this new album. So it feels like a real emotional exercise, but also an intellectual exercise for me. And I think that's some of yeah, the greatest stuff that uh, a band or a musician can do, can produce for a listener. Wow, that's just an incredible way of putting it, I think. It's <laughs> so good. They make you think, and it's about 
expressing these things that feel very hard to define yeah yeah that's so good great um <laughs> wonderful i think maybe so in the last um few minutes we have then do you it'd be great to talk a bit more about your book um i thought yeah. i thought i heard you speak um yeah could you just talk about why did you feel that book needed to be written and the process behind it yeah, sure. I mean, so I started thinking about this book actually kind of a number of years ago um, when I started to realize that there were a number of women who had done work for Factory, but are really just never credited anywhere. And I've been interested for a long time in thinking about marginalized voices in history and the way histories are written and how we can sort of rethink the way we structure these historical narratives to be more inclusive and to sort of reframe the knowledge we already have. And for me, writing this book was, it was really important to do that. Um, I think so often women are left out of histories, um, especially in the music industry and other industries as well, but especially in the music industry. Um, and, uh, I really wanted to think about how to put together this book in a way that, not only showcase the voices of these women, but really uh, brought together their voices in a kind of powerful collective way. And so for me, that was doing it as an oral history, a narrative oral history. I find that format to be just this incredibly um, democratic forum where a lot of different voices can come together in conversation. Um, but none are kind of placed on a hierarchy, none are subordinated to another. And so you get this um, incredible, almost cacophony, and I'm using cacophony in like in a, a good way, like yeah. a beautiful cacophony of voices that really speaks loudly. Um, and that's where I guess the idea of cacophony comes in. Um, so I started contacting uh, women, you know, a handful of women early on, and I had already gotten to know a couple of the women in the book, and in particular, Tracy Donnelly. And I mentioned to her that I was thinking, could this be a book? Do you think women would speak with me for it? And she said, why don't you make a list and I'll, you know, help put you in touch. And she was really supportive from the get-go. She said, you, you should absolutely write this, Audrey. You've got to write this. You know, all these women, you know, haven't had a chance to tell their story. And so at first I had a list of like around 20 or 25 women somewhere in there who I knew had worked for Factory. And even that seemed like a lot because I thought most of these people have just been totally cut out of these existing narratives. And so that seemed like a lot even. And as I kept talking to people and interviewing them for the book, they kept mentioning more women, you know, like, oh, have you spoken to so-and-so? Have you thought of trying to track down so-and-so? And so I kept, you know, making notes, taking down notes of all these women. And the list just kept growing and growing. And um, I, I think I interviewed... Uh, there are almost 80 women's voices included in the book. And there were also a lot of women who I just wasn't able to track down, uh, even though I tried really hard. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I mean, so it was really just an incredible project. And I think it, you know, people have asked, not necessarily, you know, after they've read it, but from the beginning, like, oh, is this a takedown of factories? Is this about sexism in the music industry? And I mean... 
yeah, it's important to, you know, kind of talk about sexism in the music industry, but I don't think this is a takedown of factory at all. Of course, a lot of these women experienced sexism as women working in the music industry. But for me, I mean, I think this book really enlivens the myth of factory records. So I think anybody who's thinking, you know, kind of, oh, like, is this destroying my image of factory? No, it's actually completing this much fuller image of this record label that had so much importance to various arms of culture, not just putting out records and amazing records at that, but, you know, in the music video industry, in MTV, um, and helping to kind of bring to life a lot of British bands in New York um, in the 80s, uh, in design, sleeve design, in filmmaking, in food and culinary arts. I was so excited to speak to not just even one female chef who, you know, was officially employed by Factory, but two. <laughs> how have how have their stories not been told? Um, so I think amazing to learn more about the way the Hacienda became this incredible queer space for people to come and feel free and to enjoy themselves dancing um, at a moment where it wasn't always so safe or welcoming to be a queer person um, dancing to music you love. And the Hacienda, you know, enabled that and, you know, created a place for that. And that's amazing. And there were amazing women DJs who made that possible. So I think that's fabulous. Just, I think it just really enlivens the story in ways that I couldn't even have imagined when I started writing it. But now I... Yeah, I, I feel like it is just a really powerful text with all of these incredible women's voices coming together. Superb. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. So that's uh, I Thought I Heard You Speak, Women at Factory Records, which is out now on White Rabbit Books, which is an excellent publisher as well. <laughs> yeah, an amazing publisher. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much, Audrey. That was just a brilliant chat. Yeah, no, this was fabulous. I think we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love talking with you. So thank you for, yeah, thanks for asking me to do this. What, what a pleasure. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to the Cleontel podcast. Uh, a couple of points to discuss here. Um, I was talking about broadcast and boards of Canada, and I said those bands achieve that kind of eerie nostalgic effect with production techniques, whereas with Alistair it's all in his songwriting. But I'm not sure I actually uh, agree with that, having uh, listened back. Um, I think it does a bit of a disservice to how good the songwriting is for Boards of Canada and uh, broadcast. I think if you play a broadcast song on an acoustic guitar, it would still have that eerie quality. But I think it is fair to say that um, the production of uh, broadcast and Boards of Canada is more noticeably contributing to the haunted quality of their music maybe than with the clientele but um not really sure where i'm going with this but it's a subject that um i will talk about with alistair in an upcoming episode also when i was talking about bristol i made it sound like broadmead is still a bomb site which it obviously isn't but it was hastily rebuilt after the war and yeah there's def definitely a strange energy there anyway um, moving on, this episode of the Cleontel podcast was produced, edited and mixed by me, and next week I'll be speaking to the Australian writer Anwen Crawford. So, see you next week. Hold up. 